Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. We're talking about embodied carbon, ESG, refurbishment and the environment off the back of the recent row that has erupted around the Marks and Spencers headquarters refurbishment plan for Oxford Street. And I'm joined today by Asif Din, who's Director of Sustainability for Perkins & Will, Anna Harper, who's Director at IMO, an exciting prop tech business that's developing a fantastic platform to invest in residential rented housing across Europe. And I'm also joined by the legendary Patrick Brown, who is head of ESG for our very own Blackstock Consulting. Patrick was director of sustainability policy at the BPF for over 10 years, comes to us uh, with lots and lots of knowledge packed in his massive brain. Let's start, Asif, with you. Marks and Spencers has been in the headlines quite a lot over the last few months, this has been quite a big row for the company known for its plan A sustainability policies, for making big, big claims to consumers about its environmental credentials. Talk us through why this has been a bit of a debating topic and tell us how you might have handled it if you were the architect. Oh, that's a difficult one. In terms of, you know, sort of like Mark Suspenses, Mark Suspenses, you know, everybody knows them. They're on every single high street. They have a huge portfolio in this Building is a flagship project. And as such, they have to be seen to be doing the right thing. Now, in a matter of fact, their architects have not really proposed anything huge on their site. Well, so what, what is it that's controversial? Explain why this has been a bit of a, an issue. Why is the Mayor of London now reviewing this? Because effectively, that building can be reused in some way. It has decent floor-to-ceiling heights. It's a decent building. It's a sturdy building. It's only halfway, well, less than halfway through its lifespan. And yet people are talking about demolishing it and getting rid of it and then starting again on a blank site. Now, demolishing it requires effectively a new building, maybe made of concrete, which will have a lot more carbon invested in it and to be built in its same place. Mm, well, it's not going to be made out of timber with the current mayor, is it really? Let's no. be honest. Um, and Anna Harper, so you've written a couple of books and you're about to publish ones very soon on sustainable investing in the residential side. And, and you've been involved in different guises through your work with Deloitte. And you're now a director at IMO, which is a really a fascinating business that we'll talk about a bit later on. But what's your take on this as a real estate expert, a sustainability expert? And let's be honest, as a consumer, someone who probably, I'm not, not going to talk about your wardrobe, but I'm sure you, you probably buy the odd basket of fruit in, in Marks and Spencer's and maybe the odd pouch <laughs> of overpriced granola. Absolutely. So just to clarify, my expertise is definitely on the residential side. I definitely am not as expert as the others in this room on the wider real estate, but I do see a massive parallel between what's happening here and then the potential of what's happening in the housing market, which is kind of the bit that I know about. And for quite a long time, you know, we've been obsessed by building new homes in order to solve the housing crisis, when actually in exactly the same way as here, there's a huge carbon cost to demolition. And then there's that embodied carbon of whatever else is built. And quite often, we're not really looking at that. We're just thinking about building fresh buildings that have good EPC ratings from day one. It's a problem that affects both the commercial and the residential mm. markets. So it's really interesting seeing this backlash. And it kind of is that market signal of people don't want this anymore. And as a consumer, do you think it will hurt Marks and Spencer? Do you think consumers care enough that they might say, actually, we'll go somewhere else to buy our overpriced granola, or we'll go somewhere else to buy our pants or our 
tights or our whatever it is they decide they want to purchase marks and socks are probably the last thing i bought in there 15 years ago say, i think their tights are really good so i think not yeah <laughs> patrick brown with it. so you spent over 10 years advising different companies across europe on this listed real estate mainly in, in your guys at the bpf working with many european bodies what are some of the questions that investors and developers now need to be asking about embodied carbon when they're considering similar sorts of projects to this? Well, I think the reason why this has bubbled up, you know, to the surface was ultimately because of a, you know, London Pan policy around embodied carbon. The officers saw fit not to intervene. And then suddenly it's become a political issue. It's because there was intervention by a Labour councillor, you know. Uh, and so... What, and what was would, to explain what, say, what that London so, Plan policy on embodied carbon, what does that mean? Tell so us what that means. So ultimately you have to consider refurbishment and the essentially the carbon and the energy that's within the materials that go out to make the building that you have to, be, to make an assessment yeah. actually london is one of the first cities yeah. anywhere on the planet to demand this and this is now this True. sits within planning rules on major projects the mayor of london london's plan says that you have to give me a bit of paper that's got this calculation on it yeah so in those 10 years that you've um making me feel very old uh, have referred to well, I haven't um, been I there have, for over 10 years. Uh, Christ, we're said, both pretty old. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Full disclosure, uh, more like 20-year career. Over that time, often we've referred to embodied carbon as being this land we must visit someday. It's been something that we've known to be important, but haven't really ever delved too deeply into it's been the too weeds difficult of the, to delve into. Of the metrics. Yeah, yeah. Now that seems to be becoming far more real. And I suppose the reason why I'm, I refer to the fact that it's become a political issue is just a bellwether of that. It makes it abundantly clear that actually there is a seeds of change brewing there. So in respect of the advice to kind of developers and clients, I think it's operational carbon is no longer the energy performance certificate rating of the building, how much carbon that entails is no longer the only show in town the now embodied carbon needs to be considered what it goes into the fabric of the building, what goes into the services in the building. And Asifdin, from your perspective as an architect, Perkins will obviously works on huge projects right across the board from hospitals, laboratories, you're working with the NHS in the UK, you're working with all sorts of players in Asia and the US. When you're working with different clients, what are the sorts of things you're making them do now, making them think about now that they might not have had to do even before COVID as recently as two years ago? Well, carbon is one aspect, essentially, that we think about quite carefully. But there's a range of other environmental impacts that have to be considered. And they have to be considered in a round. It's a systematic way of thinking. To think about just carbon, just as a single metric. So is... what are those other things? So let, let, this is a good point. Let, let's pull this apart a little bit. Because people get very obsessed by things. And it's very easy to say m and bad for knocking down building, which is a, a headline that we've essentially seen rolled out over the last six months. But there is another side to this story, which is why we're discussing it today. Absolutely. You know, sort of like, I think one of the things that has already been raised is the operational carbon. Sort of like, it's no use. What does that mean? Explain that for people. All right. Okay. What are your bills, essentially? It's sort of like, how much does it heat to heat and cool your building to make it comfortable for the people inside, the people that are using it? It's no use effectively retaining a building if it's not going to be usable. And... That is something that has to be assessed pretty early on. Yeah. The other sort of side of sustainability, you know, other aspects in terms of environmental impact are the resilience of the building. If you are going to invest in a building, you want to know that you're investing for the long term. You're not going to be investing for a short amount of time. You know, it's not an M&S festival. It's going to be there for a certain number of years. How many years? How much value does it actually retain? 
Also, in terms of health and well-being, what are the people going to be feel like who are in there? What is their productivity going to be like? Are they going to be comfortable inside there? Is it going to be able to deal with future climate? There's a range of different aspects that need to be considered. And just to obsess, essentially, about a single carbon figure is probably the wrong way of dealing with this. But it's the one that grabs the headlines. And, and may, may I add something? I, I guess this whole debate brings up this idea of Goodhart's law, which is where, you know, once a measure becomes a target, it becomes obsolete as a target. You probably know it better than I do. But anyway, it's that idea of, you know, we start targeting things and then using that as our measure and then the standard drops, basically. We become obsessed with one target rather than looking at the bigger picture, which is what you, both of you have been talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. It's effectively, you know, sort of like the monkey orangutan thing that you can only picture a certain amount of oranges and there's only a certain amount of metrics that you can juggle. The main problem is that we can collect lots and lots of data but whether that data becomes useful information is the actual critical thing. And what's the way to cut through this, Patrick Brown? So obviously policymakers, regulators, legislators have to make a decision at some point that says you can have permission to do this, you can't have permission to do that, and we're going to use these rules to give you that grounds upon which that decision is made. So how do we cut and slice the data to come to reasonable conclusions that bake in all of the salient points that ASIF making? It's a tough ask. I mean, certainly, I think one thing to say at the at the outset, and I think part of the reason why this may have bubbled to the surface is around the time of, um, you know, kind of the seismic change, I guess, that likes of Greta Thunberg, you know, elicited a number of local councils declare climate emergencies, and then didn't necessarily have the underlying policies to deliver on the targets that they set by throwing their caps over the wall and saying, by 2030, we'll become net zero. Well, they bought the T-shirt from the tour, but didn't know the words to the songs. You might very well think that. So think that's partly the situation. So there's an element of showboating here, virtue signalling from different people, different Well, people. the whole Definitely. zero metric is a it's... whole showboat and based on very little facts. <laughs> why do you say I'm that, Anna, to... Anna, Anna Harper? Why do you say that? I think there's a lot of companies that have set a net zero target that specific like you know, leaders who have said we're going to be net zero by this point when they know that their successor will be in charge and they won't be in charge and ultimately so the terry Lee thing from tesco of, of leaving just as the ship's about to start yeah water. yeah but the other thing to add to that or is doing that an alex ferguson is doing is it doing an alex ferguson or doing a terry Lee? which is it not a clue. You can decide, listener. <laughs> decide for yourself but i think there is something to be said for the process should be reduce for example, if we are targeting carbon emissions, reduce and then only then after you've reduced to the extent that you can and changed your energy sources, only then offset. And I think companies are reducing a little bit and then waiting, like planning to wait 10 years because they haven't set their target till 2045 and then only starting offsetting in 2045, which to me seems like that's a marketing initiative rather than a genuine green thought process. So for me, the approach that seems to be being taken now with regard to the you know, the M&S building, and we're coming back to that, I guess, is that a revised stage two assessment will be submitted, which will take into account some of the embodied carbon aspects. That, so explain that what happens. So stage two, of, in terms of REBA stage two, to design, just explain for people what that means. Yeah, so I think the original assessment was about 39,500 tonnes of carbon would be the cost of demolishing and then rebuilding. But essentially, they could look into ways to save some of that embodied carbon. Now, that might be done 
I think you had GPE on the podcast before that looked at the idea of retaining glazing. There yeah, we had, Jade, yeah, we had Janine Cole, the sustainability boss at GPE, formerly Great Portland Estates, yeah. talking about this. So retaining glazing at, I think it was at Finsbury Square. Finsbury Square, yeah. Bridgeland did similar at Triton, where basically they retain glazing, just almost remanufacture the glazing. So there are ways that you can reuse building elements, if only, I think, that we get to a point where some of the insurers... And some of the valuers are willing to get on board with that as a concept. And that's a problem, Asif, Din, isn't it? Because you guys as architects and your friends and engineering businesses, whether it's Chapman, BDSP, Elementa, whoever it is, you can come up with some amazing solutions that say, hey, GPE, British Land, Landsex, we're going to save you heaps of cash by designing a way in which you can preserve the existing glazing, but you're going to get marked down on your EPC because they don't like that. You're going to get marked down by BRE because they don't like that. And the insurers aren't going to insure it because you're reusing a part from an old building and they don't like that because they don't understand it. Um, it is a case of business as usual. Or am, be I being, or am I being wrong, cynical and slightly... No, no, you are being slightly cynical about it, yes. But it's sort of like... But it's not unreasonable, doing... right? Just, just a little bit inflammatory. No, cynical. I'll okay. leave it as cynical. Okay, that's but, fine. Right, but it's easier to do the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance is knock it down, start again, have brand new stuff straight off the shelf, don't worry about it. Yeah. Now, that's the way the system is set up. To do anything different, retaining, reclaiming, recertifying, remanufacturing is always going to be difficult. And in matter of fact, I'd almost argue you're probably going to spend about the same to be quite honest, to do it properly as new. But you're going to be saving the carbon. Mm. But you're not going to spend the same amount of half. Or if the government does look at introducing some kind of proper carbon pricing at some point, which, let's be honest, it's like you mm. do in our lifetime, right? Mm. And then I guess the idea is, well, I know that the idea is that then people can budget, really. So your old colleagues at Deloitte are rubbing their hands about this, aren't they, right? Because they're thinking, right, we're going to make a fortune here. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I'd actually like to pick up on one of the other points that was made earlier around you know, clever strategies that you were talking about for reusing elements of buildings. Yeah, and let's talk about that because this is key. I think I want people to be thinking about is exactly that. How can we do things differently? And the reality is, so according to the World Economic Forum, the best embodied carbon reduction strategy is do nothing. Right? The second best is do less, basically build less. Yeah. The third is build clever and kind of to your point, and then it's build more efficiently and only then is it sort of focus on minimizing waste. So that's the best practice. Obviously, we're not at scale at that best practice. But I think one of the things that's missing and one of the things that's exciting about what we can potentially achieve over the coming years is with more data, we can all make better decisions. And I'm not just talking about government and policymakers, because, I mean, they do get a lot of flack. But ultimately, every business needs more data to make better decisions mm. as well. But, We're but all kind of again, that. that's going down a linear route, effectively, of basically saying you do step one, step two, step three, step four. In a matter of fact, it's always more complicated than that. Let's just choose a random example. Let's choose how many miles do you have to drive in a diesel car before getting an electric car would be better. Now, that sounds like a sort of like a quite a complicated problem. Because when you start thinking about it, right, that new car has got to be produced. It's got a hump of metal in it. It's got some lithium in it that's coming from a foreign country. You're going to be putting that all in. And you've got an existing car sitting there. How many miles? I don't think I could answer that question straight away. And I don't think many people could. I just bought my wife a second-hand Audi as if to, I didn't bother. It's like, she want a car, you can have a second-hand one. 
What? Petrol one? Yeah, petrol one. It's going to sit outside the house most of the week. Low embodied carbon, high operational carbon. 10 year old Audi. No, it's a depreciating asset that's going to sit on your driveway. A lump of metal that is going to slowly cost you more and more money. Well, that's fine. Or I could go and buy a, a Tesla. And, and actually, remember, listeners, Teslas have lithium batteries. What's lithium? That's a fossil fuel. It comes out of the ground. Lithium isn't something magical that falls from the sky. Well, they're not making much of it anymore, are they? <laughs> it's it, like with copper, like with yeah. nickel, like yeah. with other things that are in part of blended products. It's very difficult to disaggregate those well, exactly. in low state. So in buildings, essentially, that is also a problem. But Asif, sorry, we cut across you with our banal banter. You were making a point. No, I think I made my point. <laughs> <laughs> so your point you're making is actually Asif saying, Anna, look, stuff's a bit more complicated than just mm. the WEFs. It is. And 100% it is. And that's certainly what we know from our experience in the residential space, where in an ideal world, you just want to improve every single house that had an EPC of less than B. But it's not that practical, either on a commercial level or on a technical level. It's not that simple. So you do have to look for the kind of properties that you can actually upgrade to that level and have to be quite strategic about it. Through- well, also, I mean, and the argument is that you buy the really awful ones rather than buy ones that are B or C, you buy the D&Es and you make a bigger impact, make a bigger impact for exactly. the same money. But I suppose where IMO is partnering with institutional capital to give them access to what is essentially the world's biggest asset class, one of the great selling points of your platform is you've got the data, you will have the data, and you can also then benchmark that impact you're going to be creating from a carbon perspective potentially as well. Exactly. It's all about using data to make better decisions. And I think to the point about institutions that you work with, every investor has a different goal, really. And ultimately, it does come down to that. And the same with the Marks and Spencer's conundrum (laughs) is ultimately, it all comes down to your goal. And if what you're aiming for is the best customer experience, then maybe you would knock the building down. But if your goal is to minimize your carbon, then you make a completely different decision. But you've already said you're still going to to buy your tights. I still like the Marks and Spencer's tights. (laughs) But I also don't shop in a real store. So ever. So, so it's not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the target client. <laughs> As if in terms of some of your clients, so you're working with a number of big tech companies, you've worked with big media businesses and technology businesses and all sorts of others as well. Tell us about what some of these technology companies are demanding of you and how they might have treated such an initiative. Oh, that's a difficult one because each client is absolutely different. Mm. And in many ways... You know, sort of like what I'd be advising them, no matter what the scale is, effectively, of the project is, what have you got already? Assess properly what you have already, whether it's a pre-demolition audit in terms of an office fit-out, whether it's existing building stock, or if you're trying to amalgamate different offices, which one do you choose in terms of which is the one that you amalgamate to? Mm. It's a case of assessing properly what you have. I think one of the main problems with... What's happened at the M&S store and with the industry at large is that we don't have enough data to actually create those benchmarks to say what is a good decision, what is a bad decision. Yeah. So in matter of fact, what we need is a good benchmark so that it can't be gamified in some certain ways, especially with the GLA, because the GLA asks for a report. They ask for a case to be made. Now, it depends on the writer and whether they can actually write up a good report and make a good case. Now, that shouldn't be the case. It should be based on facts, surely. Patrick Brown, if you were writing that report, 
it would obviously be a very good report, but what should these reports contain and how do we use technology, work with the different innovators, different experts, academics, to try and solve some of these challenges on, on getting the right data and true data. So is this at the level of an individual building or is this, are we trying to sort of design a policy that applies to all types of buildings? I suppose we're trying to design a route forward for people, for investors, for developers, for mm. businesses. So whether it is M&S, whether it is Waitrose, whether it's Google or, or Amazon or Microsoft, any of the big tech firm, PayPal, that might be looking at buildings, what should they be doing? How do they consider whether they build something new as people like Apple or Google have done in the States and the UK? Or, or do they go and, again, look at what Imo is doing and taking existing stock and think, actually, look, we're going to make impact. We want to be carbon negative. We're not going to go and build a new building. We're going to go and buy a few existing buildings and refurbish them. I mean, there are plenty of companies out there that are making quite a you know a good business case of doing just that, right? In terms of taking buildings that have good bones, and essentially sort of turning those into more desirable spaces and realizing you know value creation from that and in so doing an incidental byproduct or possibly on purpose they are you know saving embodied carbon along the way but it's the long tail of the market that i'm concerned about it is the people that are looking at you know possibly the secondary and tertiary markets looking at those buildings and saying well you know functional obsolescence is beginning to knock at the door let's knock this down and build something better that may be the right decision the, the in that whole case. valuation market effectively in terms of property is based on land it's not yes. actually based on the asset that actually sits on it absolutely that's kind of where i'm going with well this it, is a this. failure of, of and who controls the values up the rcs the uh probably not not a company known for its great levels of governance so possibly but i think it goes to a wider level and then you start looking at what the likes of kind of ellen MacArthur have you know been talking about and there's an excellent book by uh, david tash of formerly of acom looking at how would you retool the economy at large looking at sort of more circular approach towards you know value in its widest sense so that involves looking at when you're designing buildings making them more flexible and adaptable and factoring in the idea that that building might have multiple uses over the course of its life looking at how you might design the interior of that building to you know move partitions around to be able to you know adapt to you know changing tastes which if the pandemic has taught us anything is something that we need to be planning for so We've talked about the kind of the metrics aspects of this, but I think there are kind of softer sides of this, and you're probably going to challenge me on this in about 30 seconds, that we probably need to build into any kind of policy that advises people on how they should be thinking about design, how they should be thinking about kind of repurposing buildings. What I'm going to ask you, Patrick, is what are some of those incentives for change? What are some of the carrots that we can be putting out alongside some of the sticks? So I suppose if we get to a point where we have a, you know, a decent metric to attach to it, then I think, a, you know, a carbon tax becomes, you know, something that can be, you know, channeled appropriately for this. But I think we come back to the measurement problem, right? I think in respect of the sorts of things that real estate clients especially kind of understand well, it tends to be along the lines of the building regulations. It tends to be something that is, you know, centrally applied and, you know, can that be... legislation will just take far too long. The game will be over by that point, to be quite honest, in terms of carbon. 
Well, you know, how how long (laughs) has it been since the new Partel is just coming through and it's been watered down by lobbying? Explain what Partel is for people that might not have a clue. In terms of the building regs, Partel deals with the energy a building uses and effectively the regulations based around that. How much insulation you put in different elements like your wall or your roof. And also whether you have a gas boiler or not in residential buildings as well. And Mm. that's one of Mm. the other fun considerations coming up the road. Yeah. Do we have enough engineers to plug in all of these heat pumps that we've told everyone they should buy? That's a good question. And there's a lot of things that we don't have enough of in order to deliver this, which is where incentive schemes of some kind and not just tax schemes or sticks are going to be relevant. Because How do we determine whether those have good value, which is the question that any government... Whether what have good value? Any incentives. If we as a European government, UK government, any domestic mm. government is pumping out money so that your business can profit from people having free heat no, pumps... That's a good question. It is a very good question, and I'm not one to make a moral judgment on who should be spending what money on this. I'm just saying if you are going to spend money on, for example, implementing a new tax change, you might think about what the same money could be allocated to avoid the problem which we have now, which is people divesting the problem, just selling the property off rather than dealing with it. Mm. And I think to your point on building regulations, I think 76% of the housing in England was built before any insulation was required in residential housing. As a result, we've got old. That's why so much of it is classified as non-decent. Exactly. And in particular, the secondary and tertiary markets. But the problem with that is it's probably quite rightly and from a moral perspective, it's very political to just knock down all the housing in a local area and rebuild it. And it's not conducive to social cohesion or any of the social sides of ESG investing. Any policymaker in this space is caught between a rock and a hard place Mm. with the environmental, the social, and to your point earlier, which you might cut out, the governance. And also making the energy supply system for that housing stock Mm. cope with electrification of heating Mm. and the progression towards increased renewables in the grid and also bundling an EV at the same time. It's quite a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about. And we're not going to be cutting out that comment about the RICs and their lack of governance either. That's staying well in this podcast. Um, But but just on this point around electrification, because it's a good one. And again, uh, let's not make this all about heat pumps because I think people are just going to turn off if we go and talk about heat pumps. But but, but but there is this conversation around electrification and this being some sort of panacea for greening buildings it's not but let me ask a Kerbal question as we come to finish to Anna's point on how best could we spend the cash and ultimately if we're going to go and refurb thousands of buildings billions of potentially trillions of pounds euros of real estate across the UK across Europe that money could maybe be better spent on greening the grid, right? And if the problem that we have is, well, we're using too much dirty energy, too many fossil fuels to power buildings, heat homes, maybe we just use green energy to do that. Is that something, Asif, then you, you think it's worthwhile or are you advocating for a blend of different solutions? Well, that's a leading question, isn't it? If ever I've heard one, it is a blended We've solution. We've already established that I'm both inflammatory and cynical on this podcast. Well, so. no, you know, it has to be a blended solution. The infrastructure would not be able to deal with it. Effectively, you need three times the grid capacity to actually deal with it in terms of hard wires in the ground to actually serve what we'd have to serve. Yeah. So, if you're asking me for, you know, if I was in government, what I'm would saying, I do? if you had a couple of trillion quid, how would you spend it? Well, it's, I wouldn't say 
couple of trillion quid. I'd say that effectively it needs to be market driven. You just can't solve the problem by just lumping a huge, you know, suitcase of cash on the table well, and I say, think, yeah, sol- so- solve this part and, oh, we'll leave the rest. I think yeah, SoftBank proved that by giving loads of money to WeWork, didn't they? But, uh... well, another controversial <laughs> subject, but let's leave that one for another one. Yeah, it's another podcast. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but and- it needs to be done through the tax incentives because that is the shortest mechanism to provide the market with the right incentives. And if you're going to do that, then you would have to find a mechanism to actually do most of the building stock in the UK, providing provision for decanting and making sure retrofit happens properly and deep retrofit happens properly within housing. So the Treasury announced the most recent autumn statement, which was quite dry, that it was going to conduct a bit of a review of incentives to make sure that we would continue to punch our way with the remainder of the OCD. Anything uh, it, they won't go far enough. Promise you that. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about landfill tax? Could we escalate that further? Avoid well, waste? We could escalate that further, but you'll just escalate the fly tipping in comparison. It's sort of like, you know, you've got to see what the bounce back will be. Mm. This is my problem with gamification. Because effectively, if you put something in place, you've got to see where the loopholes are going to be and where people are going to run to. Now, if you provide a positive carrot, and then provide the stick in terms of taxes, I see that as probably the best way to incentivize deep retrofit. And and it comes back to what you were saying, really, on on this this universality of a carbon tax being a central driving platform for all of this stuff. But obviously, it requires us being able to measure the stuff. Yeah, and I wasn't necessarily proposing a carbon tax. Um, I was. I was just saying that you you were. (laughs) Um, No, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily the solution. Because to your point, there's always adverse incentives and I'm not being a policy expert myself, but I know that that does have impacts for lots of different businesses, lots of different investors. I think the thing is that to all of these points, you say to achieve the right level of results, but that definition of right level is so subjective is that, for example, to your point earlier about retaining heritage sites or the same thing, heritage communities where, you know, let's say you've got a X mining village that some of the houses are falling down and, you know, EPC ratings of G, do you knock them down and start again? Or the community probably wouldn't think that was the right solution. So I think there is so much subjectivity even if it's more energy efficient, it might not be the right answer. And no, I, we I, have to get that right before any of these policies can be effective, in my opinion. And I do think that we have so many different factions of what is correct in the wider ESG space, not just in relation to carbon or embodied carbon. That so maybe there the is system, no right answer. So maybe the system is working. Maybe the MS building for a political you know controversy forced to rethink maybe that's exactly, the system work as exactly it because because that's the incentive structure that we have at the moment in lieu of a, any kind of tax really it's what people care about and when they make a fuss about it and whether they carry on or they don't carry on buying their tights at mns that is the market mechanism even if it is just about publicity and pr and all oh, mns have done a bad mm. Well, let's leave it there. I'm going to continue to buy my tights at MS. I'm not sure about you, listener, Great. but, but Anna, Anna will continue to buy them online. I will continue to go into the store. Asif is going to continue to be indifferent to this concept, and Patrick uh, will have to wait and see. Thanks very much to all of our guests. Asif Din, Director of Sustainability at Perkins, and Patrick Brown, 
head of ESG at Blackstock Consulting and a Harper director at IMO. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to PropCast on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud. Search PropCast. Send us your reviews, your abuse, your suggestions for guests. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.